Welcome to the Frederick Seventh-day Adventist Church Podcast, your place for positive, uplifting messages of hope. You can learn more about us at fredericksdachurch.org. Now here's Roger Mace with his message, Eat and Rejoice Before the Lord. Many people in today's world are yet confused about the meaning of the Lord's Supper. Perhaps one of those reasons is there are different names for it. And just to mention some of them, we we have the name of the table of the Lord mentioned in 1 Corinthians 10. We have the breaking of the bread, which is mentioned in our scripture text today, Acts, the second chapter. We have the Eucharist, which means, or translated, thanksgiving, with the words of Christ, uh, after having given thanks, he gave thanks, mentioned in 1 Corinthians 11. Eulogy, eulogia, the cup of blessing. And then communion, that is one we often call this service. And then there's one called the Mass, which actually means a re-sacrifice. Of course, we know that that one is not a biblical one, as Christ's sacrifice is once and for all. Thankfully, we don't have to re-sacrifice. We have that wonderful provision of his death once and for all. Now, the church has always been confused is because we try to make something out of this service more than it was intended. Uh, There have been a lot of battles in the church, especially during the Middle Ages, over uh, this doctrine. For instance, do you know where the word hocus-pocus comes from? Do you know the origin of hocus-pocus? We, we today understand it to mean uh, magically we're going to change something into something. We're going to take this coin and make it into a, a dollar bill, hocus pocus. Well, the word for this is my body, the Latin words are hocus meum corpus. Hoc, this, is, is, meum, my, corpus, body. Corpus, of course, our word corpse comes from. This is my body. And in the Middle Ages, of course, the people didn't understand Latin. And uh, the priests would often, through rote memory, just said those words and, and I guess, mumbled the words a little bit. And uh, uh, perhaps back in those days, they did not uh, They did not serve the wine to the people, and the priests might have been a little bit tipsy. Uh, And the reason for that is we don't want to spill the blood of Christ. If we put it out in the congregation, the blood might get spilled. Because there was the Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation. Took me a while when I was in seminary to kind of say that. I've got it down now. Transubstantiation, which means 
that when the priest blesses the bread and the wine, it actually changes into the body and the blood of Christ. So Hocus Pocus came out of that. In fact, in 1694, John Tillerson made this observation. In all probability, these common common juggling of words of hocus pocus are nothing else but a corruption of hocus corpus by way of imitation of the priest of the Church of Rome in their transubstantiation. Now, this was taken very seriously by the Roman Church. In fact, uh, many Jews were slaughtered at the invitation or the hands of the priest and the mobs when they were accused of going into the church, stealing the blessed bread, and the bread, I'm sure, was a little larger than our wafers, and nailing it to a tree. Now, if you believed in transubstantiation and you believed that that was the body of Christ and these Jews were doing it again, it probably wouldn't be too difficult to get up a mob to take care of these people. So, sadly, the communion service became a warring item. Now, when Martin Luther came along, he had uh, some opposition to transubstantiation, thankfully, Uh, But he didn't really help the cause very much. Uh, He said that the bread and the wine do not actually become the body and the uh, blood of Christ, but that instead they are physically present in the body and the blood. Now, we know from an examination of the biblical text there is absolutely no support for transubstantiation or for consubstantiation. Now, when John Calvin came along, he was with the Reformed Church. Of course, he had that wonderful uh, edifice in uh, Geneva. And I had the privilege of visiting the church in Geneva where John Calvin preached a beautiful sanctuary that was very ornate and uh, I was attracted to the little chair, the pulpit chair, where John Calvin sat. We're talking about a chair that most of us would not be able to sit in, including myself. Uh, It was very narrow. And so John Calvin was a very small frame guy, but he walloped a lot of power. In fact, if you miss communion, or in fact, if you not only communion was a high day, But if you missed any service that John Calvin called you to, he would send his deacons out and escort you to church. And if you refused, you ended up in jail. Now, this morning we have a few empty pews. And if our deacons were on the ball today, and if I were John Calvin, we could quickly fill the sanctuary. But, of course, we have come a long ways from being that kind of arm twisters. 
But he had the view, it wasn't a physical presence of Christ, but it was a spiritual presence of Christ. Well, it sounds like he's, a, he's on the right track, but still, when we consider the biblical text, there is absolutely no documentation of that biblically. So John Calvin didn't quite take it where it needed to go. But thankfully, the reformer Zwingli got it right. He stayed close to the biblical text, and he said that the communion or the Lord's Supper was a memorial of Christ's death. And of course, no matter if you're reading uh, which uh, text you're reading in the Bible that talks about the Lord's Supper or the communion, uh, you will get that idea. This do in remembrance of me. I think it's on the front of the table there in front, isn't it? It is a memorial of his death. We remember Jesus and what he did for us. Now, it was hocus pocus for most of the people because they didn't understand. They didn't have a Bible to examine who was right and who was wrong. And so they accepted it and it became entrenched for a quite a long time. But we want to move beyond these theological uh, discussions or battles uh, because they don't take us into the spirit of what the communion service is about. I think that in order to get to the truth, we need to have it go to its most, uh, the lowest common denominator. What is basic here? What is happening? And I turn to Dr. Luke, and I say Dr. Luke because he was the scientist in the crowd, and he did something that the other gospel writers did not do. One-fifth of Dr. Luke's gospel and his Acts of the Apostles, which he wrote, has to do with food, has to do with meals. I don't think that this was because he was obsessed with food. I think it was because he observed something very powerful about Jesus. And it was uh, in Luke, the ninth chapter, it talks about the feeding of the 5,000. That was quite an undertaking. And it had to do with Jesus being able to provide for their daily bread but he was giving them something more than their just daily bread. And uh, the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread. Luke 14, the parable of the Great Supper, just to mention a couple. But Luke's material concerns the events in the life of Jesus is when Jesus eats with others maybe following something that he has done for them, or it may be in one of his parables, he has some sayings about food. And if we are to understand what the Lord's Supper is about, I believe we need to begin with the everyday ordinary meals that Jesus partook of with the many different people that he ministered to. So the first point is that Luke makes something meaningful about food. He says we eat in order to live. That is, food is essential. 
sometimes people, because of their asceticism, asceticism and their of religious belief, will disdain food. And they, that is without any kind of scriptural support. There are physical consequences of not eating, of course. We can get all kinds of developmental and uh, disorders and diseases. There are psychological consequences to not eating food. Uh, hungry people are very different uh, when from thinking like well-fed people. Uh, you can easily get into distortions of thinking very easily, especially with anorexia, uh, where a person changes their whole view of themselves and they cannot see themselves as they are because of their distortion uh, that is brought about by the lack of eating. A hungry body twists the mind's thinking. Luke knows this, and he's, he does say we should pray for food every day. Uh, we eat in order to live. And the Lord's Supper reminds us that we need this daily bread. But Luke knows something else. He knows that food does not meet all of the human needs. Uh, there are deep, deeper needs that we have, and that is what we call the heart hunger. I noticed in counseling people who uh, are into partying pretty heavy. I, I had one lady many years ago, she said she party hardies. She's a hearty partier. And, uh, but she had lots of issues she was dealing with, and she was running away from dealing with them by partying. The problem is having that celebration and eating that food did not do it for her. She always was left hungry for more. And she had to go back the next day and have another party. She was addicted to the parties. But her heart was not being fed. And everywhere in Luke's writing, whose hearts are people whose hearts were aching and they were hungering for something deeper, something better. So we can observe from our own experience that there are times when we may enjoy the food and there's not much else going on. Uh, that's a bad dinner, isn't it? It's when we just are focusing upon the food, we have nothing else to say, and we focus on, well, that's a wonderful dish, that's a, so tasty and so nice. But then there are times when we eat and we completely forget about the wonderful food we're partaking of and we're into talking with the persons, perhaps with the cook, with the, with the children at the table. We are excited about and we are being fed by the relationships that are there, which is what Christ was talking about uh, through Dr. Luke. Remember Zacchaeus? Uh, he illustrates that transparency and the visit of Jesus at Zacchaeus' house revolutionized his life. He had decided he needed to go in a different direction, so he climbed that tree and Jesus asked him to come down. He was going to go to his house, and when he go to someone's house, you are going there not just to sleep. You're going there to eat and to talk. And Jesus said about Zacchaeus, today 
salvation has come to your house. Now, wherever Jesus eats with people, whenever people eat with him, the meal is a visible declaration of Paul's announcement. Now is the day of salvation. In fact, I'm going to turn to 2 Corinthians, uh, the fifth chapter, and verse 21. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This is talking about what we're doing here today. We then, as workers together with him, also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in an accurate, acceptable time, I have heard you, and in the day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. And Zacchaeus experienced that, that firsthand. Now, we must be sure to give salvation its full weight. And when someone is drowning in a foot of water and they say, hey, I'm drowning, we probably don't get too excited about rescuing them. We, we don't think it deserves a lot of effort to go try to save them. But now, if they were in deep water, over their head kind of deepness, then uh, they are paddling around and they are certainly in the process of drowning, then that deserves salvation. And so when the Lord says salvation, he's not talking about inconveniences. He's not talking about the troubles that we sometimes experience on the daily basis. He's talking about the ultimate salvation that is saving your life. And so when Jesus went to Zacchaeus' house, he was there saving him. Uh, ultimate loss is possible. Now, the name Jesus, Jesus in Greek, comes from the Hebrew word Yahshua, and Yahshua means God to the rescue. So Jesus is the friend of sinners only because he is first a savior of sinners. He is there as a savior. He is to the rescue. And as a believer, I want to, I want to have that ultimate salvation. Forget about the troubles that I would have to go through on a daily basis as long as I have that ultimate salvation. Now, food is eaten when the younger son comes home from the far country. The father said, dead and now alive, lost and now found. And Jesus, I mean, the, the father who received him was one who stood in the place of Jesus metaphorically, to be the one to bring life into that celebration and into that son's life. And when the daughter of Jairus is raised from the dead, what do you suppose people did? They celebrated. They ate. And when Peter's mother-in-law is healed from sickness, what did the people do? They ate. And in Luke's writing, Eating is a festival 
which celebrates deliverance at the hand of God. Yes, we do live in order to eat, but we also live to celebrate. That is when we are saved, when we are rescued, we have something to celebrate. Now, I know that the heavy theologians, a heavy theological talk that we've done at the first part of this sermon uh, might not get us in the mood for this meal, but actually, uh, this is something to praise God for. Uh, it is not heavy at all. The mood is full of joy. Uh, Jesus is asked why his followers don't fast like the followers of John the Baptist do. Jesus was one who was at the wedding feast, and when there was uh, a need, he provided for that need. You don't go to a wedding feast or celebration where there is no food served. That's, that's not considered uh, culturally correct. And people are there having fun. They are celebrating. Jesus said, this party is mine. And when I give you a party, I don't want people coming in with their head, heads down, dragging to the ground and in despair. I want people to, to come and be happy and rejoice and celebrate. You know, the Bible uh, describes, the Greek language actually describes a little better uh, than our English translation, how Jesus felt. Uh, Jesus did feel when he, when he was looking at all of those people who did not have a savior. Uh, the scripture says that it knotted his bowels. Our translation, English translation, is he had compassion. But when you talk about knotting your bowels, has your bowels ever been knotted because of what you are dealing with? That's, that's pretty difficult to deal with. And so Jesus did experience this. Now, in Acts 2, our scripture lesson today, it tells us about the early Christians. They partook of food with glad and generous hearts. They were filled with great joy. Now, glad hearts. The Greek word for glad hearts is spontaneously great joy. Now, what is spontaneous great joy? Do we have any of it here? Amen. Well, we, we need to have it here. But we are accustomed to believing that we need a lot of introspection. The reason why some pews are, are empty here is because people have gotten the idea that they're not worthy. The Bible doesn't have anything to say about unworthiness in coming to God and to, to, the, to the Lord's table. Uh, Judas, of course, was unworthy. Peter was unworthy. He denied Christ. All of the disciples were unworthy. They were all sinners. All of us are sinners, right? We are all unworthy. So no one is more unworthy than a person who is unworthy. And we're all unworthy. The scripture says, don't come in an unworthy manner. There's a difference. 
a big difference. That is, we want to take the Lord's Supper seriously. We want to have enough introspection to where we do examine ourselves and we say to ourselves, am I in the Lord? Am I with him? Do I accept his sacrifice? But we don't need to go searching inside and and saying, okay, see if I can make a list of how bad I am. That's not going to be a a good climate for you to want to come to communion and experience more of the same. You look to your neighbor and you'll notice that they're in great pain as well because you all have to do is is look at our faces, right? And and we've got this guilt and we've got this shame we're dealing with. And it is noticeable. We, we feel it ourselves and we it, it can become contagious. But what a wonderful testimony it would be if we could have joy become contagious in the congregation and where we could change the mood. And I much prefer, there are some songs we can sing that will just get us more depressed. Charles Wesley, Charles Wesley sang one, and can it be that I should gain an entrance Interest in the Savior's blood. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. He was excited. He was praising God. You know how sweet the name of Jesus sounds. Um, John Newton wrote that song. It's in our hymnal. How sweet the name of Jesus sounds in a believer's ear. It soothes his sorrows, heals his wounds, and drives away his fear. Now, John Newton was a slave trader. In fact, he became a slave of a slave. He was, he was really about as unworthy as you could find a person. He had a lot of things to be ashamed of, but he got converted. He examined himself and he accepted the sacrifice of Christ and he was rescued. And he wrote some of the most beautiful words that have been penned. Jesus, my shepherd, guardian, friend, my prophet, priest, and king, my Lord, my life, my way, my end, accept the praise I bring. He had something to praise God for. He had been rescued. He had been saved. Now, I am a beneficiary of the inexhaustible mercy and a glorious promise. The communion we're going to partake of today is not the Last Supper. The Last Supper has already taken place. It is a memorial of the Last Supper. We do remember the Last Supper and what occurred there. And Jesus had good reason to be in emotional despair because he had a lot facing him and he could not see beyond the cross. He did not know that his father would be able to accept him. And that's why he sweat great drops of blood when he was in Gethsemane. But after we're on this side of the resurrection, Jesus' sacrifice has been accepted. He is our mediator sitting on the right hand of God. And when we come to communion, we have something to be happy about. 
And when Jesus invites us to a party, he doesn't want us to be unhappy. It's an insult upon the host of the party. Jesus is going to be inviting us one day to a grand table, right? And when we show up at that table, are we going to be hesitating? Well, I really don't know if I am worthy to sit down there. You know, maybe I'm a little bit too close to Jesus. Why don't you, you know, get take my seat? I'll go at the end of the line as far away from him as possible. That would be an insult. All of us, don't we want to be able to rejoice? If we don't begin rejoicing here about the grand gift that we've all received, how can we be prepared to be happy there? We sang the song in the sweet by and by. Thinking about, okay, one day everything's going to be different. I'm going to be happy. All my troubles will be ended. But how about the sweet here and now? And the sweet here and now begins because heaven is the ceaseless approach to Christ. And it can begin now. It is not something for the sweet by and by. In the book of Deuteronomy, which inspired me to one, uh, it's mentioned a number of times about eating and, and rejoicing before the Lord. But Deuteronomy 27, verse 7, you shall offer peace offerings and you shall eat there and rejoice before the Lord your God. So church, it's time to get rid of the frown or the hesitation. It's time to put on that east-west smile and be full of joy and share in the wonderful provision that God has given us. No matter where you are in your spiritual journey, Frederick Seventh-day Adventist Church would love to help you along the way. We are a family-oriented, grace-filled church serving the Frederick, Maryland area. You can learn more about us at frederick.sdachurch.org. For more podcasts, click the sermon audio link. 